Thanks for listening to the Prevention of Blindness Society of Metropolitan Washington event replay channel. The replay of this event starts now. All right. Thank you, Nick. And good morning, everyone. I hope everyone's had a great holiday season, a pleasant Thanksgiving, and a happy new year to come. I have just a couple announcements for this morning. First off is the month of January will be taking off for town halls. So our next town hall will be in February on Wednesday, February 16th at 11 a.m. Um, and we are still going over and developing our planning for town hall topics in the springtime. So if there's any sort of town hall topics you'd love to hear more about or think would be good for us to share with the community, please let us know. As a reminder, our resource hotline is still available Monday through Friday, 11 a.m. to 5 p.m. And we also have in-person appointments available at our Bethesda Low Vision Learning Center on Thursdays and Fridays, 11 a.m. to 5 p.m. So we welcome anyone who's interested in uh, an in-person appointment or has questions to call our hotline. Uh, the hotline number is 301-951-4444. And if you know someone who'd be interested in getting themselves added to our newsletter mailing list, either via large print mail or email. Again, you can give our hotline a call or you can even email us at events at youreyes.org. A friendly reminder that our resource guidebook, if you haven't heard of it before, it's called Your Eyes in Low Vision, is still available both in large print, paperback, and also on our website, youreyes.org. This guidebook has over 100 pages of resources and services that could be helpful for those of us who are losing our sight, as well as our friends and family. And most of the services are free. If you'd like to get a guidebook, you can give our hotline a call or again, email us at events at youreyes.org. And we welcome you to share this with anyone you think be interested, whether that be loved ones, your doctors, or even community centers. As Nick mentioned, we've made it easier to listen to recordings of our events. So after today, you can find this recording as well as all of our past recordings on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and more. And you can even visit our website, youreyes.org. We have a link that'll take you directly there. You can even ask your Amazon Alexa to play recordings with just your voice. So if you have an Alexa-enabled device, just say, Alexa, play Prevention of Blindness Society of Metropolitan Washington podcast. You can give it a try, or if you want to learn more, you can give our Low Vision Learning Center hotline a call for assistance. Finally, the month of January is fast approaching. Uh, and January is National Glaucoma Awareness Month. Glaucoma is a leading cause of blindness in the United States, and often there's no early warning signs or symptoms. So mark your calendars. We're excited to announce that we're gonna have a special glaucoma awareness presentation on Saturday, January 22nd at 10 a.m in person at Friendship Heights Village Center, and it will also be available via Zoom. We're honored to have Dr. Arthur Schwartz, who's a nationally renowned glaucoma expert, join us. And he's gonna present on the latest research of the disease, 
treatments, and ways that you can prevent or slow vision loss from glaucoma. So please stay tuned for an announcement in your email if you're on our email list. And it was also included in this past month's newsletter. If you'd like to sign up or learn more, you can email us at events at youreyes.org. Or again, you can call our resource hotline at 301-951-4444. Now, before I, we pass it over to Dr. Alibi to get things started, I'm going to pass the, back, the mic back to Nick, who's going to have a very short special announcement for everyone. Nick? Thanks, Sean. As you all may know, the Prevention of Blindness Society of Metropolitan Washington is a community-based nonprofit organization serving our local area. We provide nearly all of our services at no cost to you. This is only possible through the grants and generous donations from our community members. Because of your commitment and generosity, POB has added several low vision services to help connect our community. Hundreds of individuals with low vision have been able to connect with local experts and each other to share helpful tips through the POB Town Hall, the Bethesda Low Vision Learning Center, the Resource Guidebook, expanded programming, and more. As we continue to navigate the pandemic, the Low Vision Town Hall meetings in particular have shown us the amazing effect of kindness and a positive outlook. If you haven't already, I invite you to listen to the recordings of previous town hall meetings that you may have not been able to attend. And feel free to pass them along to your friends and family. These are great examples of how our community comes together to share in moments of support and education. Your help can make these programs and others that help our local community possible. Recently, we mailed and emailed out our year-end campaign. This is one of the only times of the year where we directly ask for donations to help keep our vital community programs running. Please kindly consider us for your end-of-year giving. We are beyond thankful for whatever you're willing to and able to provide. And some great news. Thanks to a very generous donor, all donations up to $10,000 will be doubled so you can help make twice the impact, but you have to make your gift by December 31st in order to qualify for the match. If you've already given, a big thank you to you. It's easy to give. You can do so online at givetopob.org or call us at 202-234-1010. Thank you for your continued support. Now let's continue with today's program. Dr. Alibi, take it away. Good morning, everyone. Just a quick thumbs up that you can all hear me well. Okay, great, great. It's so nice to be back here and good to see you all. And um, this is the wonderful time of year where we all have that warm and fuzzy feeling as we look forward to the holidays. Our guest today, Nina Glasner, is no stranger to the Prevention of Blindness Society and has already given a wonderful talk very early during these town hall meetings. And I'm sure you'll be able to find that recorded talk on the, um, on the website as well. And I appreciate Nina coming back. Nina is a licensed clinical social worker who has had a lot of experience in low vision and low vision rehabilitation. 
Nina did some of her training and spent some time at the Low Vision Research and Rehabilitation Center at Johns Hopkins at the Wilmer Eye Institute. And actually that's when I first met Nina myself. And since then, Nina lives in the Bethesda Chevy Chase area and has provided this one-on-one -on -one support for many of my patients who have had issues and making that adjustment, making that transition from having normal, perfectly functional vision to having difficulties with their vision. So Nina is a great, great resource um, for me and, and, and the patients that I've referred to her over the years. So it, it gives me great pleasure to have Nina join us again. And keeping with our format of questions and answers, I will interview Nina, ask questions. But because this is really more of a discussion about how are we coping and doing, I will invite you to ask your questions during this interview as well. You can put your hand up um, or flag um, if you're on Zoom and um, one of us will, will um, get to your question as well. So without further ado, first of all, Nina, welcome back. And um, uh -oh. looks like Dr. Alibi may have frozen. Yeah, so um, sorry to interrupt, but um, I am going to jump in these times when Dr. Alibi's internet is a little bit spotty um, at the clinic right now. Um, Wonderful. Thank but, you, Dr. Nguyen. Nope. Well, thank you, Sean. So when Dr. Alibi gets back, um, I'll introduce Ms. Nina Glasner again. Um, but did you have any opening words that you may want to talk about before we get started, Nina? Um, thank you. First of all, thank you. Uh, oh, it looks like my internet connection is <laughs> so I asked Dr. when to can't hear it. It's it's okay, Dr. Alibi. I think that um I think we got it. I'm gonna send you a chat. <laughs> but Nina, you, you can continue. Thank you. First of all, thank you for having invited me. Um, it is a pleasure to be here. I, I've really enjoyed my connections with Dr. Alibi, with POB, and now with Dr. Nguyen. Um, so it is, it is wonderful to be here. I have prepared some remarks, and we can either move forward with those, or if you would like to just ask questions, that's fine as well. Um, so would you like me to, to do my presentation or would you like to just leave the floor open for questions? I think the presentation would be a good start and then we can open it to questions and answers and any contributions from anybody, um, if that's okay with you. Oh, that's great, that's great. Thank you. So um, I was asked to talk about how we cope with the holidays. For many people, the holidays are a wonderful time. They're a time of getting together with family and friends. They're a time of making memories. They're a time of, uh, of joy. But for other people, the holidays and special occasions 
represent a time of stress and anxiety. Um, even before COVID, for many people, the holiday season was often fraught with tension and stress. People struggled with such issues as who to be with, how to get there, who's doing the cooking, if and how to decorate the house, things like that. Um, there are often issues around gift giving. Who do we give to? How much to spend? Um, how and where to make purchases? Um, people with visual impairments may have the added stressors of transportation, difficulty with in-store shopping, difficulty reading catalogs. And for those who are not tech savvy, savvy difficulty with online shopping, which um, has become a very popular way of shopping these days. Um, the holiday season can also be a time of sadness. Um, people may not have nearby relatives. People may have sad memories of the holidays. Um, there may be an increased sense of isolation and loneliness, um, especially as, as we witness the festivities and holiday pre preparations so pervasive in our society. Um, I had one client who, who disliked the holiday season so much that she said to me, you know, I wish I could just go to sleep from beginning at Halloween and waking up after New Year's. It was such a difficult time for her. And now we add the layer of complexities of COVID. Um, there was a short break during the summer um, when we felt like things were getting more back to normal. Um, but now thanks to variants, we are again experience a heightened fear of becoming infected. Um, although it may not be as stringent as last year, many people are still practicing a certain level of social distance and physical distance and physical distancing. Um, the other thing is that because we are experiencing a worker shortage, many services are limited or are not as timely or as good as they once were. Doctors' offices, grocery stores, restaurants are all short-staffed. Some places have closed. Um, some places require us to wait a lot longer to get appointments than we used to. Um, the breakdown in the supply chain means that certain items may no longer be available or that it may take longer to get them. Um, this is particularly an issue during the gift season, the gift giving season when you want your gifts to, to get there on time. Um, as COVID continues to mutate, there is, a, there is uncertainty of what the future holds, what COVID protocols are comfortable for different people, which travel and social restrictions may once again be recommended. Um, this inability to make definite plans can be frustrating and anxiety provoking. The disagreement about what may be safe and comfortable for different members of the family or friends may also lead to tension. You know, I may be um, more compliant than my neighbor. My neighbor wants to come over, but they're not willing to mask, but I would want them to mask. Um, and within friends, within friendship groups, within family um, systems, this actually can be a huge stressor. So how do we make the best out of the holidays? If they are important to you, keep the traditions that you are used to. Decorate the house, get dressed up, use those special dishes, make or buy that special food, even if it is only for yourself. Um, 
it really does make you feel better. During one of my holidays, I, I was lazy. I decided, you know, it's not worth it to just go through all this preparation for just me and my husband. So I just put out the regular dishes. I didn't make any special foods and I was very depressed. The next day I did it the right way, the way I always did it. You know, I, I set the table nicely. I did, made our special foods. My husband and I um, got dressed and instead of our, um, you know, casual clothes, we actually got dressed nicely. And even though we weren't with other people, it just felt so much better and just so right to be doing those things again. Um, some houses of worship have returned to in-person services while others are offering live streaming or Zoom. Again, if it is your normal practice, try to join the services, even if you have to do that virtually. Um, I'm actually working with somebody who's totally blind and she decided during COVID that she was so isolated um, that she, she, want, she needed more than what she was getting. So she reached out to friends and neighbors and actually developed a small social group. Um, people have been coming for a few months now. They started off outdoors. They're now meeting inside um, because everybody is vaccinated and boosted. But um, every year she goes to see Handel's Messiah and she wanted to do that again this year. So she actually um, organized her group to do that with her. So she's continuing her routine um, despite COVID. <laughs> um, many of us use the holiday season to connect and catch up with family and friends. Um, it's a time to share memories and to make new memories. Continue to send out those holiday greetings in print, virtually, or by phone calls. This reaching out to people is especially important at a time when we may not be able to get together in person as we once did. Another client suggested to me, um, for her, it's important to send out greeting cards in print. Many of us have lost that art, um, but people are still doing it. And she reminded me, you know, it's hard. It's, it's hard to do that um, many things in print. And she reminded me of the low vision aids that she uses um, when, when writing greeting cards, you know, use a 2020 pen, use bowline line paper. Um, there's a template um, so that you can address an envelope. Um, use those things that make it easier for you. It may be that you want to dictate your, your letters or cards, and that's okay. Whatever works for you is okay. Um, you, you may not be able to celebrate with you know, the large family gatherings that you used to have. So take advantage of those smaller intimate gatherings. You know, maybe it's just one or two other people that you can have over. Um, maybe because of travel restrictions, um, you may not be able to visit the out-of-towners. They may not be able to visit you. Invite a neighbor or get together with a neighbor. Um, make some new connections but try to celebrate in whatever way you can. Um, if, if part of what your holiday season was about was doing volunteer work, see if you can continue to do that. Um, you may not feel safe um, you know, going to a soup kitchen or doing the in-person things that you once did, 
maybe you can make phone calls to people who are homebound. Maybe you can make phone calls to your friends who are feeling just as isolated as you. But finding ways to feel helpful um, really does help and um, makes you feel better. Uh, there was a recent article in the New York Times in, um, entitled, Not Home for the Holidays, which spoke about how the liberation of the loss of traditions over the last two years has actually allowed people to forge their own celebrations in different ways or just skip it altogether. Um, people are giving themselves permission to do what makes them feel better rather than fulfilling you know, some unpleasant obligations that they had in the past. So the article talked about um, people, some people are not choosing um, to drive, um, to spend time with family because it may just be too stressful. Instead, they're spending time with friends or they use the time to go somewhere on their own. Um, some people are choosing easier ways of celebrating together by doing it on Zoom. You can connect with people all over the country, all over the world on Zoom. Um, and some people actually say by having these Zoom meeting celebrations, you can actually include more people than when you do it in person. So don't hesitate to do that. Um, on Zoom, you can play games, you can share memories, you know, you can talk. I actually have a friend who does, um, they do their family um, celebrations on Zoom now. And what they do is everybody cooks the same food um, and they all sit and eat together at the same time. So they're sharing the same food, not in person, but on Zoom. And it, for them, it feels more like a, a, a family celebration. Um, some people are choosing not to um, do celebrations on the traditional days that we're used to. So um, one person wrote, well, instead of, of gathering around Christmas time when, when traveling is really difficult, they, they gather another, at another time of year. Um, the, the thing that's important is not the actual day of celebration. What's important is the gathering or the people that you're with. So if you're celebrating Christmas in August, that's okay. Um, it's okay not to do it on the exact day. Um, some people are starting to limit their gift giving. Um, some families are starting to limit that, that part of the holiday celebration. They save money, it's less stressful. Um, people aren't getting the white elephants that they may not want. Um, and you can, you can think about that. You know, what, what gifts are really important, which gifts are not so important um, is just your presence, um, whether it be virtually by phone or in person, is that more important than the gift giving? So what are some stress relievers for the holidays? Um, some, you know, some of the stress relievers I spoke about last time are general for any time of year, and some are more, um, more specific to our COVID times. Um, we're still limited in, you know, where we can go, what we can do. Some people feel comfortable going to the gym, some don't. Um, but try to get some form of exercise several times a week. 
Um, exercise is important not only for your physical, for your physical health, but also for your mental health. There are many virtual exercise classes available, or just make up your own exercise. Go out if you can. The important thing is that you keep on moving. Uh, try to get under, outdoors, um, but if you can't go out, at least open a window to get some fresh air. Um, use all of your senses to appreciate the sounds, the feels, the smells of your environment. You know, with babies, we recognize the importance of getting outside, but um, it's just as important for adults to get outside as well. Try to give some structure to your day. You know, um, routines really help our mental health. It helps us get up in the morning. It helps us just get through the day. So, you know, get up, take your shower, get dressed, um, eat your breakfast, um, you know, listen to the, the radio the way that you yeah. normally would, um, yeah. eat your meals the way you normally would. Um, it just helps to define your day. Maybe you can find some new ways to feel useful. Again, you know, I spoke about some volunteer work, um, just making phone calls to people who are isolated. Um, if there are other volunteer avenues, you know, do, um, do that. Um, on the other hand, you don't have to feel like you're useful all the time. It's okay to take downtime. It's okay to just sit or, you know, listen listen or watch a tv program that that isn't very deep <laughs> that just might be fun um, some people meditate meditation is basically downtime it's time when you're just sitting still sitting quietly walking you can meditate while you're walking you can meditate while you're indoors or outdoors but just take some time to to be Without, without feeling obligated to accomplish something. Um, for those of you with religious faiths, um, as I said before, um, many houses of worship are offering things in person and online. Um, there are online and in-person sermons, lectures, and activities. Even if you can't go to your um, mosque or church or synagogue, people are finding comfort in staying connected with their religious leaders and fellow congregants. As I said before, meditation and yoga are great stress relievers. You can do that on your own, or you can do it online, or nowadays in person if you feel comfortable with that. So recently I took a um, webinar for social workers. The presenter said that given the unprecedented, unprecedented times we live in, the uncharted territories we are facing and the anxiety and stress that most of us are feeling. It is okay to express your emotions, your fears, your frustrations, anger, uncertainty. It's certainly okay to ask for help, be it with functional practical needs or emotional needs. It's okay to ask someone to help you with decorating the house for the holidays, with online shopping, or to try to help you with technology. Um, try talking to friends and relatives about how you're feeling. You know, that also gives them permission to talk about themselves. So your, your opening up actually allows other people to open up as well. Uh, take part in support groups with people who are in similar boats to yours. I actually have several clients 
who um, who who are recovering alcoholics did not attend AA meetings for years, and now during COVID have actually found it a comfort to go back to AA meetings. Most of them online. Um, but it's just, it's a place that feels like home to them. It's a place where they have commonality with other people. And during these times of isolation, it's really been a comfort to them to go back to these AA meetings, despite the fact that they're not, they have no desire to drink. Um, it's just a group support and feeling less isolated. Uh, don't hesitate to call your doctor or therapist if you need to, it, if you need, uh, you're feeling like um, you're, you need help with depression or anxiety, or if you're just not feeling well, don't hesitate to call. Try journaling, either orally or in writing. Sometimes just putting those words out in front of you helps to relieve some of the stress. Uh, try a daily gratitude practice. A gratitude practice is um, kind of a listing of three to five things every day that um, that you're grateful for or that made you feel good. Um, it can be something as simple as the sun is shining today or I actually woke up this morning. Um, it can get into something more, uh, deeper, more spiritual, more complicated. Um, but what the gratitude practice does is it helps, it helps you kind of focus on the positives in your life. And that's not always easy to do. Um, and it, it I, I personally do a gratitude practice and I share it with, um, with a friend. I also have clients who share their gratitude practices with me. Um, what it does is it makes me and, and other people kind of look for the positives. As I'm going through my day, I think, is that something I'm going to be able to list tonight for my gratitude practice? And it just it kind of helps your perspective a little bit. Um, and finally, um, learn to honor and respect your own needs. Learn to respect the comfort levels of others in regards to COVID protocols and restrictions, even if they're not, even if they're different from your own. But recognize what your comfort levels are, what you need. Um, during a pandemic and a season which can be full of stress and turmoil, turmoil, I hope you find ways to find joy and contentment and find happiness for yourself and others. So thank you. Um, please questions, comments. Thank you for letting, letting me meet with you today. Thanks so much, Nina. That was so helpful. I picked up a lot of few tips um, to bring to patients as well. Um, but before I ask my questions or if Dr. Alibi has questions, I. I think opening the floor to everyone here for their questions would be a good time right now. So if anyone wants to, you're more than welcome to, or you can leave something in the chat and we're happy to read it out loud for you. And I'm gonna give a couple of minutes. Yeah, thank you, Nina. I'm sorry that my internet has been a little bit troublesome. So I'm going to try and stay on, but if I get disconnected, thank you, Dr. Nguyen is here. And most of you know now, Dr. Nguyen has joined me in practice. So she is here to back me up in more ways than one. So thank you. But Nina, that was really very useful. And I'm glad we're recording this because when you feel down, it's one of these things that 
it's worth going back to listen to your suggestions and things that you have outlined here. Um, any questions? Yes, Dr. Nguyen, I think that's a good, good opportunity. I, I can look through and see if anybody's hand is up. In the unmute yourself, you can select the uh, mute button. It looks like a microphone at the bottom left of your screen. Alternatively, you can press the Alt and the A buttons together on your computer. And if you're on the phone, it is star six. And while we're waiting, we did have a question come in via email prior to uh, today's meeting. Um, Nina, thank you so much for the presentation. Uh, somebody uh, requested uh, that we talk a little bit about or had questions about how they can uh, talk to their loved ones, uh, trying to communicate their new vision loss and what that means to them. And not then they want to be able to do it without feeling like they're guilty or um, putting an undue hardship on someone else. So um, I, I think that just being, trying to explain in a forthright manner what they can see and what they can see is a good start. You know, when somebody has low vision, other people can't see it. When you have a broken leg, everybody can tell that you have a broken leg. When you have low vision, um, other people, can't can tell what you can see and what you can't see. So I think that's an important place to start is try to explain um, to your loved ones, you know, what your vision is like. Um, I often recommend that um, family members go along to an eye doctor appointment, um, go along when they're seeing um, Dr. Alibi or Dr. Nguyen, because um, the doctors can also help your family members understand what it is, what your vision is like. Um, they can see, you know, the eye eye tests being performed, and it it's a very um, concrete way of helping family members understand. Um, I, I'm not sure what you meant by not making them feel guilty. Um, I think that if you, if you can explain to family members and friends um, exactly what, what you're seeing and what you're not seeing, it's really helpful. I think that's a start. Um, you know, unfortunately, part of, part of um, the, part of your responsibility is to help train those around you. What are your needs in terms of low vision? You know, can you tell, can you tell um, everybody around you? Oh, I'm sorry, that's my other phone. Um, can you tell everybody around you um, that you need things put back in the same place every time? You know, the salt shaker needs to be in the middle of the table. It can't be on the corner of the table because then you won't be able to see it. Um, 
don't leave don't leave things lying around the floor where you can trip over them. Again, these are things that sighted people may not be aware of. Um, so it is really important for you as the person with low vision to be very specific about what you need and what you don't need because otherwise people don't understand. So that's kind of, it's your role <laughs> to help train, to help train those around you. So Nina, that brings up a very interesting issue and this isn't necessarily related to the holiday season, but in general, when someone is visually impaired, you're right, they need to educate their family members and friends and things for things that they need help with. At the same time, I sometimes find people don't want to let on too much because there might be a loss of independence. If, um, if you're visually impaired and you're asking for help and somebody says, well, how come you could still see to do that and yet you can't see to do this? Or another situation that sometimes occurs is um, the individual by asking for help gets a response from a family member, something like, well, I don't know whether it's safe for you to continue to live independently now. Maybe we should think about moving you. So oftentimes I find many of my patients have this sort of dilemma. It's a very delicate balance between saying, look, I do need help and I appreciate you helping. And at the same time, being a little fearful that sometimes by letting on perhaps, is that's a better way of putting it, by letting on that they're having difficulties, somehow people around them are, are going to now start taking away things from them that they could still do independently um, or somehow be confused that how come on one hand you're telling me having trouble seeing this yet on the other hand you want to continue doing this other thing I don't know if that's something that you I'm sure that you come across and you deal with and how does one balance these two things it's tough it's very tough um, I think part of it is a process um, just as the person with a visual impairment is kind of learning what they can and can't do, um, those around them need to learn the same thing. Um, again, I think being straightforward is important. Um, and there may not be an explanation. You know, I can, I can perform one task, but not the other task. Um, and I don't know why that is, but this is what I can see and this is what I can see. It's also really important to stress, uh, you know, and some of, some of the issues around visual impairment and independence and control are similar to what older people go through. You know, our assumption is that, well, old people, they can't handle their finances anymore, they have to move. Um, you know, cognitively, of course, they're impaired. Um, so it's, it's similar. And I think that just being straightforward and, and when somebody wants to help, when you feel that you don't need that help, how do you do, how do you, um, 
how do you say gracefully, no, thank you, I can do this, um, without getting upset, without getting angry. It needs to be a conversation. It needs to be a dialogue. Um, you know, the, the stereotype of, uh, of a Boy Scout dragging a person with a white cane across the street. You know, how, how does that person say, thank you, I appreciate your help, <clears throat> but I can get across the street by myself or let me show you the right way to do it. Um, so it really involves um, open dialogue, um, hopefully unemotional dialogue. Um, I think, again, training those around us to what we can do and what we can't do is, is important. On the other hand, you know, often there are times when, when people don't recognize what their limitations are. Um, driving is one of those. You know, people with, with low vision, some people whose reaction times are not what they should be, continue to drive at times when they're not safe to be doing that. And, and their loved ones may be recognizing that and it's hard for the person with a visual impairment to recognize it and give it up. So I, I think that open communication from both sides is important. Um, educating, um, educating each other is important. And also recognizing that often loved ones are, are being protective, not because, um, because they're trying to put you down, but they're being protective because they love you. Um, they don't want you to get hurt. They want you to be safe. Um, so we also have to recognize that piece. Um, I think open communication is really the key. Respecting each other and listening to each other is the other key. Um, yeah. I think it's very valuable when you said that you should take somebody with you to your doctor's appointments. I often find, and I'm sure you do too, Dr. Nguyen, is that oftentimes the family member sitting in the exam room watching the exam is sometimes surprised by what their loved one can or cannot see. And they often have questions and there's some confusion. And like you said, this openness and dialogue, it's better if I do have that loved one, the person who's anxious and responsible for whether it's your spouse, your child, your your sibling, it doesn't matter, it could be your friend that you've come into this exam with, that those questions are asked in front of a professional. Like I'm, I'm, I, I wanted to ask you whether you do the counseling with family members too, because for us as low vision practitioners, it is helpful to have a family member, friend, sibling, whoever it is with this person who's, who's actively with this person on a daily basis to participate in that conversation is, is it safe for mom to drive now? You know, and mom might say, I think I'm safe to drive down to the grocery store, but maybe not on the beltway. Or is it safe for dad to be using his carpentry tools now because of his vision. 
And again, dad might say, well, I, I've been doing this for years and years. I've always had a, a workbench and um, I still think I can do this. So th I find this is, it, it is an interesting conversation that occurs in the exam room. And I didn't know when, and when you're doing counseling, Nina, whether you're encouraging the, the individual who's experiencing the vision changes and trying to cope with it, you're encouraging their family members to join in these counseling sessions. How does that work from your end? Um, I do. I do encourage family members or loved ones to join. Not every counseling session, um, but depending on what the client wants. Um, there are there are times when I think it's important. I think it's important both for the client who is who has a visual impairment and the family member um, to be in the same conversation so that they can hear each other. Um, you know, they say a disability is not just an individual disability, but it's something that affects everybody, everybody in the family. There may be changes in roles, like role expectations. Um, family members have their own emotional reaction to, to what their loved one is going through. And the truth is that sometimes it's harder for the family member who is the onlooker um, in terms of the emotional piece. Um, and they need to process what they're going through as well. And I think it's important for the person with a visual impairment to hear that. And um, <laughs> to people need to help each other through this. Um, it's a process. It's not an easy process often, but um, I think each person within that family unit needs, needs the support of the others um, because it is not easy for anyone. I think the importance of being at a doctor's appointment or being in a counseling session is that it kind of puts everybody on the same page. Um, I, I think that's a good point. And some, sometimes... I'm sorry, I, I was just going to say one more thing. Sometimes people are more open to listening and accepting um, information and suggestions coming from a third person, um, coming from a professional, or, you know, just coming from not a family member. Um, sometimes it's just easier and easier to accept that, that information. No, that's a good point. Somebody had to, a question or a comment? Go ahead. I did have a, a question. Um, my wife is in a memory care facility. And um, as I was listening to your uh, excellent presentations, I was thinking, does the professional staff in a facility like that ever get to hear or, or uh, as part of their training, the kinds of things that you're talking about here that have to do with, with someone with low vision problems? I don't, uh, what I have observed is that they don't have any idea how to treat people 
with low vision. Yeah. And I'm just curious if, if, if you do facilities ever uh, ask for training like this? Uh, do either, either do the professionals ever ask for training like this? That's a very good question, you know, Jack. And let me try to answer that this way. Both Dr. Wynn and I, and I think Nina, you too, we have all participated in support group meetings in facilities. So um, whether it's, you know, the Erickson properties, Ryder Woods or Maplewood or Leisure World, we've all gone there and given talks and presentations. Often the person who's leading those is part of that facility or that institution. So it could be a social worker, it could be an occupational therapist, it could be um, a member of the staff who organizes outside lectures and things. Now, does that mean they convey to the direct providers there, the caregivers there, all this information that we discuss in the support group meetings Truly speaking, I don't know, but I think it would be valuable to give this type of presentation directly to them um, rather than the support group meeting. I can tell you the Prevention of Blindness Society um, has taken a lot of effort to reach out to doctor's offices and actually go in and give presentations to the technicians, to the nurses, to the whoever the um, clinic. Understand so, how do you how do you deal with that? Um, so, so, Dr. Well, Adam, I, is you were going in and out the last um, thirty seconds or oh, so. Oh dear! Again, my I'm, I apologize about my internet here, but. Um, I think it's a very valid point, Jack, and I think it's something that would be helpful. Johns Hopkins at the Wilmer Eye Institute, what, how are you all handling this from within the hospital itself, for example? So Dr. Alibi, you also cut off a little bit um, in the last session, but are you addressing your question to Nina or in general for whoever went to Wilmer? No, um, in, in general, from, from the standpoint of the clinic there, was there any effort made to connect with the different departments and to address this issue of how are visually impaired people taken care of in the different departments and the wards and so on and so forth? Go, go ahead, Nina. I wasn't sure if. <laughs> so I haven't, I, I did tr uh, train and, and work at Johns Hopkins for a while. And during the time that I was there, we did hold, um, we, we did hold workshops for the ophthalmology department um, to try to um, make the doctors and the other staff more sensitive to to the physical and um, kind of bio uh, and social and psychological needs of, of those with low vision. 
Um, I, I'm assuming that some of that may still be going on. Um, and um, I actually appreciate the fact that you've raised this issue again. There were times when I was asked to come and speak to the staff mm -hmm. of facilities. Um, I did so at the Hebrew home. I did so at some um, retirement communities, but haven't done it in a long time. Um, you know, I, I don't know if it's our role or maybe what we need to do is approach these places and offer training sessions. Um, the Prevention of Blind Blindness Society has been wonderful in establishing support groups. Um, and as Dr. Alibi said, there are sometimes employees from those places, um, from those places that do attend the sessions. Um, but training, doing a work, doing a workshop and um, sensitivity awareness for the for the staff is very helpful. Um, the other piece that I've tried to do when I've spoken to low vision groups is I've tried to encourage them to become advocates um, for the facility, you know, letting, letting the facility know that these are their needs and working with management and administration to meet those needs. Um, so there've been groups that have worked with management and they've, um, they've gotten announcements and menus printed in large print. Um, changing the lighting, making lighting better is a little bit of a tougher, a, a, of a tougher job. Um, but if you don't, you know, I encourage the residents um, that if they don't let the administration know what their needs are, then the administration doesn't know. Um, and so if there are changes that can be made on that level. Um, one of the issues with working with the staff is that there seems to be a high turnover. And unfortunately, our, you know, our training doesn't always reach the newer staff members. Um, but it's a challenge. And I really, I do appreciate you, you raising that question because um, maybe we need to look at, you know, what should we be offering? Um, how can we help facilities have a better understanding of those with low vision? Thank you. Yes, and I do have to agree with Nina um, um, in the terms of advocating, being your own advocate in these types of situations, because it is difficult and sometimes, um, sometimes people don't realize that they're coming off a certain way. Um, and when you address that to the doctor or to the technician or somebody who's managing the care, they start to realize, oh, I didn't realize I was coming off that way. Let me rephrase and, and you know, kind of model it around what's gonna help you more. So I think speaking up and advocating is really important. But on our end, I think it's always important to reflect and make sure that we address the needs of the patient and, and, and a gentler approach, especially as needed. Um, but the question does remain, you know, what is it, that, what else can we do to make it better among the general community in every outside of hospitals, retirement homes? So um, I really appreciate that question because it is something that we should think more about. 
I had another question from the chat box for a person feeling very isolated. Can you remind us of ways to reach out to connect with others? Uh, do you think uh, social media apps might be appropriate to meet people if you have low vision? Um, I do. Um, you know, social, social media apps have become so popular. It depends on your own comfort level. You know, how, first of all, how comfort, comfortable are you with the technology? Do you need training? Do you need support in being able to use it? But how comfortable are you in having um, your information out there um, for more than just the person that you're addressing to see? Um, so I think, I, I think in terms of staying connected, for many people that is, that is their way of connecting. Um, I must say, I, I have a Facebook account. I rarely post, but I really enjoy seeing other people's posts, postings, um, because it lets me know what's going on in their lives. Um, I think you have to be careful about what you're posting. You don't wanna post anything that may um, come back to bite you in the end. Um, but Many people find a lot of support that way nowadays. Um, it's their way of connecting with people all, all over the country. Um, they, can, they can reach more than one person at a time, obviously. Um, but again, it's very important to be careful about what you're writing, what you're writing about yourself and what you're writing about other people. Um, don't put any, um, you know, any social security numbers or bank account numbers out there on social media. Um, make sure that what you are posting, if you are posting, is respectful to yourself and others. Um, and, you know, if you feel comfortable using the technology, that's great. Um, Again, it's just another way to connect that's, that especially in these times of COVID is, is, can be very useful. I'm trying to use my phone to talk and my internet keeps going down. Is it better? Can you hear me now at least? Yes. Okay, good. So Nina, it, it, I, I, I wonder about the uh, use of technology. Many of our patients are, you know, have issues with the technology to begin with. And we know that in, in younger children, for example, that despite all the social media they use, there's still this terrible sense of loneliness that they, that they experience, right? So it seems like social media, and we're, we're so much better connected now in the world in many ways, and yet we're still very isolated and lonely in, in, in other ways. Um, do you still feel that the, the meetings we have where we sit around in a circle and talk is still more effective than even using this format of Zoom, where we're, we're all connected here on Zoom, but are we uh, are we really connected in the same way or, or 
I don't know if there have been any studies on how effective is this method compared to just meeting face to face in person. I don't have any thoughts on that. Um, I actually um, watched a webinar yesterday called Like, and it was all about how teenagers, in particular, are using Instagram and other social media to stay connected. And for many, it's their primary form of connection. And it can be very harmful. It can be very harmful because um, you're presenting only part of yourself. You're presenting, um, you're not present, often not presenting your real self. And I think you have to be very careful. Um, I think that being on, being virtual is not quite the same as being in person. Um, there's not that same connection, but I think each of each um, serves, serves a purpose. Um, I think without the technologies, particularly over this last, these last two years, people would have felt even more isolated than they do. For people who, um, who have visual impairments and transportation is an issue, um, having the virtual option is a good one. Um, can it totally replace our, our person-to-person -person meetings and gatherings? No, but, um, you know, um, people have, Professional, professional carpenters have various toolkits in their toolbox. And, and I think the same goes for us. We need different options. Um, and some serve us well at some times and not at other times. When the, when, when the um, epidemic started, when the pandemic started, um, you know, I knew that I couldn't see, see clients in person. So my choice was, do I just not see clients? Um, do I not provide that service? Or do we start doing things on Zoom or FaceTime or by phone? And, you know, to me, that wasn't, those weren't, um, it wasn't a choice. Of course, I would, I wanted to stay connected with, with patients and clients. Um, and over time, it's actually become a very comfortable, um, form of therapy. Is it the same as being in person? Not really. Um, but it's better than not having that option at all. Um, and I think, I think it can be very effective. Um, you know, there's, there's some, there's a level of stress that's removed when you don't need to figure out, well, how am I going to get there? How long can I stay? How much will it cost me? Um, and this is just, it's, it's easier and it can be more pleasant. Um, so I, I think, yeah, that. yeah. I think to add to yeah. that, um, some patients and, and I can get that way too, where I get really nervous immediately going into in-person support groups and groups themselves. So I think with the combination combination of technology and in-person, I think it adds like a nice stepping stone, you know, to kind of 
transition more comfortably into a group of people that you, sometimes you haven't met before. So um, combination of those things I think are really helpful and having options, like you said, um, to guide them, I think is a good idea. Mm -hmm. Janice, do you have a question? So Judy's had her uh, mic unmuted for a little oh. while. So she's been there first, but then Janice after Judy. I'm just Go listening. Ahead, Judy. <clears throat> I, I, my technologies. I was uh, trying to just listen. I'm not. Uh, oh, okay. <laughs> question. I was just, I didn't know that I was up for speaking. <laughs> That's all right. No problem. Janice, go ahead. I don't, I didn't know that I had my hand raised either, but I, I did want to comment on the um, meeting virtually versus in person versus over the phone. I constantly kind of have that question about, and I know we're all different. We all have different needs as far as um, connecting. You're on mute, Vega. Uh, it's always been a question to me, you know, when people with visual impairment, you know, are in such a rush to get together. It's like, well, you can't see each other, you know. So I, I, personally, I find, and, and it has nothing to do with the pandemic, I, I find the, um, you know, the uh, telephone support gatherings very helpful um you guys have noticed i usually have my um video blocked so um because i can't half see you know what um everyone on zoom so I, yeah I, I i hear you nina and and dr alibi and i understand it's just i guess i'm not there so you know, the telephone is a good connection for me, you know, versus the Zoom and, you know, figuring out how to get from one screen to another and, you know, you're frustrated and whatever. And, um, and thank you for all the, um, uh, the tips and, and insight into the holidays, you know, the holidays you know, it's a, it's a great time of year. The other, on the other hand, when you are visually impaired, it can be very difficult. And then you have, you know, um, people who've sustained loss and going through that over the holidays. And, and maybe you live with a sighted person and you don't want to be the Debbie Downer for them, you know, you want to decorate the house, you know, you want to still be able to do all the things that, you know, they're accustomed to as well. Um, it's just, it's so complicated, it's turned into a complicated time of year. Um, but, uh, and uh, taking people to um, appointments with you is, is good as well, so they can hear things and maybe, validate some of the things that you're saying but then sometimes you hear a question that might be asked of the professional and it's like well why didn't you ever ask me that you know um, so um, I think that's very important for them to um, 
help to understand um, what the visually impaired person um, is going through. So that's, those are some random thoughts. So thank you. Thanks, Janice. I think those are very helpful comments and um, worth definitely worth reflecting on. Sandy, you are next. You have your hand up, Sandy Newsel. Hi, Dr. Alibi and Nina and everyone. Um, yeah, how to join meetings in person or virtually? I have to say I've been pleasantly surprised for the since about April 2020 how many meetings I've been able to attend virtually, although I seem to run into technology snags all the time, which is part of why my camera is not on. But I have had the opportunity in the last couple of weeks to attend two in-person low vision support group meetings. And I have been pleasantly surprised that there is such a good feeling to have the back and forth comments and questions in the room without the sort of stilted, okay, your hand is raised, now you can speak, and then I'm fumbling with my mute and unmute button, and then somebody says, well, we'll get to Sandy later. Um, but, but there is definitely a place for the virtual meetings because I've been able to attend, um, you know, an iBug uh, meeting that's hosted down in Texas or, you know, the opportunity to listen in on a Maryland um, library meeting where it would be way too far for me to get there. So this, this crazy pandemic has opened up opportunities for us, but I, I do treasure the in-person meetings too. And I'll stop there. You know, um... It's interesting what Janice said earlier. Some of my clients have chosen um, to use just telephone for our, our sessions because it puts us on an equal footing. <laughs> now you can't do a low vision exam on by phone, but with the therapy sessions, you know, we're, we're equals when we're by phone. I can't see the, them, they can't see me. Um, so in some ways, it's a different dynamic. Um, so I, I appreciate both what Janice said and um, I agree with you exactly. I've thought that many times, yes. <laughs> Kevin, do you have a question? Just wanted to make a comment. A lot of, lot of good information today. Um, I guess I'm very fortunate in a lot of ways. When I lost my sight, um, I did go to Wilmer. And I had the host of doctors, the retina doctor, glaucoma doctor, but I also had the occupational therapist. And I guess I dealt with things a little differently because I'm very happy to wake up every morning and have another chance to make something happen. So my attitude is pretty good about life, uh, which made it a lot easier. Um, I do live with my daughter and I still fuss at her about not putting the garlic powder back in the corner where I can just grab it when I fix my eggs in the morning. But these are things we all have to deal with when you 
low vision and still trying to make people put things back so that we can find them and, and not hide them from us right in plain sight. Um, and as far as the support groups, support groups have been invaluable to me, um, as well as participating in these support groups. Um, I had the opportunity to work with one of the occupational therapists at Wilmer, and we actually started a group to help do some peer engagement with other folks that have lost their sight to try to help them along. Um, so these support groups are very important. I really would love getting back in person with some of these as well. It's just good to feel the vibe of being around others when you're talking about these things and expressing your thoughts. So that's just pretty much all I wanted to say. Thank you. I think that's... Kevin, ahead, thank Nina. you. And, and thank you for raising the point about attitude. Um, you know, the, the spin that we put on things helps us be feel good or feel not so good. Some of it is genetic. Some of it is just, you know, our own makeup. But in, in rehabilitation, we have, we have an expression that we hope your, your visual impairment becomes a nuisance rather than a tragedy. Um, and that's easy to say, it's not so easy to live. But the fact that you've gotten training um, to be able to, to do things independently, um, to, to do what it is that you wanna be able to do, um, the fact that you know you're grateful for each day is wonderful. Some people wake up and say, "Oh, how am I going to get through this day?" <laughs> you have a different spin on it, and it really, you know, if we could, um, if we could somehow insert that gratitude gene into people, um, many people would be much happier. Um, so you're you're blessed with that attitude, and other people have to work on it. Um, and I would be more than happy to share that with anyone who ever wants to talk. I mean, I I lost my sight six years ago, as well as losing my sight. I had to divorce my wife of thirty years because of some very you know things that I knew I wasn't going to be able to deal with without having my sight. But I've adjusted. I mean, I still travel. I went to Africa in 2018. I um, started a business last year. So life goes on. You just have to focus all the positive energy in your life to continue doing the things you have to do. I'm not disabled. I'm otherwise able. That's my attitude. Well, let's borrow that gene off you, Kevin. We all need it. Even even sighted <laughs> people. That honestly, <laughs> that's wonderful. Thank you. That's really thank you. Thank you. Any other questions or comments? Please go ahead. I, I would like to add one thing. Um, genes are one thing. But you know, depression and anxiety is a medical are me medical um, issues, 
Um, you know, people say, well, I'm depressed, I just need to try harder and I'll get over it. Or I'm depressed, but it really, it isn't real. And I don't really wanna to talk to the doctor because I'm embarrassed. Um, the thing about anxiety and depression is they can be helped with medication. Um, and it's not something to be embarrassed about. It's something to discuss with your doctor if you're feeling sad or blue or depressed, and especially if it's affecting how you're sleeping, how you're eating, your, how irritated you might be. Um, talk to your doctor about it. Some people just need a boost from medication that might be able to help them get over that hump. For those of us who aren't as lucky, you know, to have the right genes, <laughs> it may just be something else that might be helpful. Um, the other thing, I don't know if you remember the Reader's Digest, laughter is the best medicine. Um, you know, it's laughter can really improve your spirits. Um, so do what you can to find things that you enjoy that make you laugh, that make you smile. Um, that can be helpful as well. I think those are very good points that you're making, Nina. The, I, the idea of gratitude, you mentioned exercise, you know, just the the fact that you exercise, you take a walk or you do yoga, whatever it is, all of those change the balance of hormones and things in our body and change our mood and laughter. I mean, we know that there are um, clinics in India where people get together and just laugh. You go in, you get in a hall and everybody goes, ready? All right, let's start laughing. And for the next five minutes, <laughs> They just laugh and you think, what on earth? This is crazy, um, but it works. <laughs> and so you're trying to change your, your own internal imbalance by, by doing something physical. Um, and we know there's a strong mind-body connection. Uh, and, and so even though these things seem to be trivial in many ways, or, you know, We've heard it over and over again, you know, go and take a walk, it'll change your mood, you know, get out of the house, um, have a change in environment or, you know, talk to somebody different, listen to another book or something. These are very simple things that I think we can all do. And, and it really has nothing to do with being visually impaired. Of course, when you're visually impaired, you, you have that hanging over you, but even, even as a sighted person, I mean, there are days I wake up and I don't feel gratitude. I don't feel enthusiastic, you know, and um, I, I have to do all those same things. So I think we all go through this. Um, and the way you've presented it today, Nina, I think it's been really wonderful. And it's been really nice that we'll have this recorded. And I think we should all listen back on this particular town hall and the one you did early on, very early on, which you, you covered many of these things too. So I, I really appreciate you coming on again to do this. We're getting close to our end time, but are there any other questions or comments that anybody wants to make, please?
All right. Well, Nina, do you have any final thoughts or comments before I hand it back to Sean and or or Dr. Nguyen? You yourself have any other comments and and then we'll let Nina have the final word. <laughs> Um, I just think that this was such a great um, presentation, a great talk in general, and the contributions from everyone here has been really um, wonderful, and I appreciate it because it allows us to learn on for you guys as well, so I appreciate it. And I appreciate having been given this opportunity as well. Um, at, as you know, as I think we we all feel that we learn as much from our patients and clients as we can give to them. So, for instance, much of what I spoke about today, I've learned from from working with other people, um, and it's wonderful that the Prevention of Blindness um, Society offers these town hall meetings where everybody does have the opportunity to share and to learn with each other. So thank you. Thank you for all that POB does. Yeah. And Nina, just because you, you, know, you were too kind not to say this, but how, how do people avail themselves of your, um, your services? How do we go about doing that? Thank you. Um, so I, I am a clinical social worker, as was mentioned. Um, I am a Medicare provider. So for yeah. those of you who have Medicare, my services are usually are, are usually covered um, under most Medicare plans. It's a little bit more complicated these days, um, but um, I I am a Medicare provider. All you need to do is get in touch with me by phone, by email, by text, and I will I will get back to you. And as you know, an initial step, we talk to see if if what you're looking for and what you need are is something that I can that we can work together on, and we take it from there. Um, most of my sessions nowadays are virtual still um, or by telephone. Um, I have seen two clients in person since the pandemic started, but I still prefer to do virtual for right now. Um, so it's an easy process. <laughs> um, the first thing is just to connect and then we can take it from there. So, thank you. Do you need a referral from a doctor? I mean, does a doctor have to actually physically write a referral or uh, people can no contact you directly? Needed. A doctor can no refer referral, but doesn't have to. A friend can refer you, you can refer yourself. It's, um, there's very little bureaucracy involved. <laughs> um, okay. That's great. That definitely makes things simple. And yeah, I'd like to give a shout out to the Prevention of Blindness Society as well. And all these town halls, the support group meetings, the newsletters, all the work that POB do is, is just wonderful. I'm very much appreciative of all the support I personally get from POB. And I hope that you all support the Prevention of Blindness Society as well. So thank you. And Sean, I'm handing back to you, Sean. 
All right. Thank you, Dr. Alibi and Dr. Nguyen. And thank you, Nina Glasner, again, for speaking today. This was a very rewarding, informative presentation in town hall today. And if everyone wants to listen to the recording, you can visit our website, youreyes.org. Uh, and we'll, we, will, we will have the recording available within the next day or two. Uh, so uh, keep an eye out for that. Uh, but otherwise, I hope everyone has a really great holiday season. Take care. And I look forward to seeing you next time. Bye, Thanks everyone. Thank you very much.